0: Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's event was broadcasted live on KCAW on June 16th, 2021. The theme of tonight's event is Sleepless in Sitka. Hey,
1: I'm so excited to collaborate with Raven Radio and help share six true stories told live on the air. We'll be hearing stories of working, walking, parenting, and light changing events during the night. That's the time when we expect to be asleep, when it can feel surreal, liminal, and unseen to be up. So this is Sleepless in Sitka, and while the stories may not be set in Sitka, the tellers are. And that includes tonight, Brian Lovett, Spencer Severson, Sam Pointer, Rachel Thompson, John Stein, and Andrew Hames. So Our first storyteller grew up in Sitka and has spent most of the last decade staying up late, too late, in loud rooms in Oakland, California. When you work in rock and roll, the late night hours often come with the territory. Please welcome Brian.
2: Silent night. Very few of those have I had in the last decade. Working in the music business where the late night hours are generally considered the middle of the work day. It's kind of funny how people can fall into patterns that make it so that the, the nighttime hours are the, uh, the middle of your day. And the day walkers, the people you see when you wake up in the morning, they're the strange ones. There's that liminal space in between you know, 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. where you've got people that are going to bed, like myself, getting off of work. And you've got people waking up to do their commute and going to work. And there's a space where a lot of change is happening. And I've kind of found a few points where my mind has changed through working through the night for many nights in a row. I got an early start to the graveyard shift. One of my first jobs ever here in Sitka was working for a painting company. And I found myself maybe second week of work in Lakeside Grocery with the the big paint roller in hand, painting the ceiling for about four straight nights. And when you work from 10 p.m. to 8 a.m., you have a completely different connection with the spaces that you're in, the people that you're around, the people that you see the next day who have no idea you were in that space before. When you've spent several days arranging drop cloths so that all of the produce in the morning has no signs that there was live painting going on above it, you have a different relationship to produce the next morning. You're, You're gonna be thinking about the ways that everything gets to where it goes and through that kind of process you know i started that early as a kid i ended up doing a lot of late night work and i found myself in a very strange scenario a few years ago that really changed my mind about christmas it was a few days after halloween which is a notoriously late night holiday and uh i had been you know working big halloween parties all of these things many late nights And I get a call a few days after Halloween from another staffing person to say, hey, we've got a couple nights of work. Do you want it? And my friend and I, we look at each other. Okay, it's good money. It's night work. We don't know what's going on. Let's go. Let's see what this is about. So, you know, we can commute together. It should be pretty easy. There's a bunch of people on the crew we know. It's good. Let's do it. So we end up at the uh, Stone Ridge Shopping Center in Dublin, California, right at about 9 p.m. as everything is shutting down and closing, and the mall is officially turned off for the evening. And now we are unloading a semi trailer of we have no idea what into the mall. And we still, you know, we haven't quite, we're just at work. We're doing labor. We're doing night labor. It's great. It's kind of like put your mind to the task. You don't have to interact with people as much. You can kind of like, put some music on if you want and just like get the work done and we start unboxing all of these things and we start looking at what we're doing. And now it it becomes apparent that it is November 3rd, which means it's time to set up Christmas in the shopping mall. And so we are now tasked with building a 50 foot tall Christmas tree in the plaza of this mall. We have all of these oversized packages, that are gonna be scattered about. We have stars to hang from the ceiling. We have miles of garland in tubs to go string about the place. We have Santa's chair for when Santa finally comes to visit the mall. We have Santa's chair that we have to put together. I can't imagine a more esteemed chair to get to assemble in the world. And so we are looking at this going, okay, we should have known it's November 3rd, it's time to do Christmas. Myself, a bit of a Grinch at that point in my life. Not really into the pageantry, not really into the spectacle, but here I am with a tub of garland in a genie lift, 20 feet in the air, going through just dust that's been up in these lights for a decade possibly, who knows how long. And I'm stringing the garland around the lights to make sure that the festivity is like very on point for everyone coming through the mall that weekend. And it's fluorescent lights buzzing and there's, there's a security guard on a Segway kind of cruising around and there's the mall ambiance music going. And this is three straight nights of 12 hour shifts of graveyard work, building the festivities that will be in that mall for the next two months. And at the end of those three nights as I'm walking out into the sunrise And we're going back and, you know, waking up in the afternoon and kind of thinking about it. I fully had a change of heart about the festivities of Christmas because I got to be one of the magical elves that made it. So when people walked in the next morning, the mall was instantly transformed into their winter wonderland. And Santa was going to arrive and there were presents and trees and stars for everyone. And the space it takes, that three, those three hours of time in between three and six in the morning is a really good time to kind of change your opinion about things if you just go and sit in it for long enough. So thank you and always stay up late.
1: Thank you, Brian. And you're changing my attitude towards malls just by listening to you. So if you're just tuning in, this is a special live show of Sitka Tells Tales. Now for our next storyteller, He has spent way too many years underwater as a harvest and commercial diver. His mind is in a permanent state of nitrogen narcosis. You may have to look that up, but he is willing. Please welcome Spencer.
3: I would like you to try to imagine me standing on a street corner in the middle of the night with my daughter under a street lamp. Her throwing up into the gutter and worrying that a police officer might be driving by and wonder what the heck we're doing if we just shut down the bars, the problem is my daughter is just a little bit under five years old. I was a divorced father with joint custody and I lived in half moon Bay California doing abalone diving and and that's where my ex-wife had moved down to pacific beach in california and we had a 600 miles to bring the daughter back and forth together and my daughter was about to start kindergarten so it was time for me to not to have her for the during the time of the school year and she'd be 600 miles away so we took off a couple of weeks together and we took my little motor home that I'd built. And we drove down highway one, the beautiful coast highway from 600 miles down to, to San Diego. And we stopped at every little beach and we picked wild spinach and watercress and and we got limpets and we caught fish and we just ate off the land and hiked on the beaches and just had a wonderful time for two weeks. And then we arrived in in San Diego in this little in this little apartment on near the beach and it was well last night with my daughter for a while and my wife was in the was at a waitressing job and she had had to work that night so we were alone and I was out in this sitting in my little camper and my daughter came out and jumped up up in the stairs and she had a toadstool in her hand well she had half a toadstool in her hand the other half she had eaten and she goes look daddy i found a mushroom and of course i had instantly i had visions of her having damaged kidneys and liver and whatever things that poison mushrooms might do and that she might die and this was the end of the world and i grabbed her and ran in the house and i called the poison control center And they said well go down to the pharmacy and get some Epicac and give her the Epicac. and whatever you do don't let her go to sleep and call us in an hour and call us what every hour and let us know what's going on, so. We did and she threw up in the camper on the way back to the apartment she threw up in the apartment she was miserable and we were having a a tough time of it getting a getting out of the uh. It got to be late and it's time for a little girl to be asleep. And she's really getting sleepy. So we started playing a Sesame Street board game that she liked. And we played that Sesame Street board game. And that didn't keep her awake. So we went walking on the beach. And then we came back and we played more Sesame Street. And then we went to the uh well, basically we just played more Sesame Street, went for more walk. Eventually ending up underneath that street lamp that I started the story with. Now, the problem was that I was in a, I was already in hot water with her mother because when my, when my daughter was with me, I lived part of the season in Half Moon Bay and part of it in Santa Barbara. And my daughter was just around a bunch of crusty old commercial divers. And she wasn't very, she wasn't getting to be around kids and she was having a lot of different adventures than most kids have. And she used to ride on the back of my motorcycle I tried to lead a pony and take her on a hike. And she took a fall and put her tooth through her lip. And when I brought her home to her mom, she had a little scar under underneath her lip. And her mom said, Spencer, she's a little girl. And so I was, uh, I was already in hot water for the way that, that we lived when my daughter was with me. So, but, you know, eventually we kept calling poison control and when we just kept keeping her awake and we kept playing Sesame Street and she finally got the okay to go to sleep, put her down to bed. And then I had to wait to get into big trouble when her mother got home, which was exactly what happened. She wasn't a very happy camper with me. But you know what? My little daughter, she turned out to be a fine woman. She's a lovely lady with a good life. And my grandson is a grown man, her her son, and he's he's a fine young man. So despite being raised by a retrobate father and grandfather, they both came out just fine.
1: Great, thank you so much, Spencer. I I wanna remind you that you're tuned in to Sitka Tells Tales live here on KCAW. Now our next storyteller is from St. Louis. He's a Marine Corps veteran and he's been in Sitka for about six years. Where you might know him from one of the numerous jobs he's had. He'll be telling us about one long night of working cloac. Please welcome the ever-smiling Sam.
4: Hello, story began with a request for me to escort a patient at the time I was working at search, and they'll ask pretty much any uh, employee, just for safety reasons, to escort a patient home and uh it's volunteer, but you you know, you know get paid for it, of course. And so I figured, you know, it's easy money, and I worked nights most of my life. Uh, worked after school when I was a kid. Even though I was in the Marine Corps, I worked uh, in a computer room at night. So you have a certain mentality about working at night. You figure it's pretty laid back, and you have a task, it's pretty easy to do, and uh, even supervisors are pretty laid back. So when asked to do this, I figure it's pretty simple. You take someone home, you have a night in the hotel, you get up and come back. So I went to get the patient. They give me a piece of paper that tells me uh, what plane we're getting on. And we're gonna catch a ferry from Ketchikan to a Hollis and, and all these uh, itinerary things. So it's pretty simple. And I always learned as a kid, you know, you wanna keep some pocket money in case something happens. So I stop at the ATM and I get money. And I pick up the patient. They said, uh, you're gonna have to take them in a wheelchair to the airport and the wheelchair comes back with you when you come back. And uh, so I'm getting on the plane, I'm getting him situated and getting the wheelchair situated and I'm kind of hovering over him and we get to catch a can. and we get off the plane. And I notice, in all the hustle and bustle of getting him situated, I lost the pocket money. So we uh, get on the ferry and I said, well, my list here says when we get there, here's a number we're gonna call a cab and uh, It should be no problem, we'll get to where we gotta go. He says you're not gonna get a cab that time of night. All the cab drivers are drunk by then. So I'm like, okay. So we run into a friend of his on the ferry who drives us to, um, um, he was on the other side of Kloak and Craig. And we get him there and we take him in the wheelchair up the steps and get him situated. And he asked his friend uh, to take me to my, I think it was a bed of breakfast, uh, the Kloak Inn. And the guy said, you know, he didn't know where it was, but he tried to get me there. And we went to one place that wasn't the Kloakian that he thought it was and thought maybe the name changed. And there was like two dogs in the in the reception area because the office is closed at night. So we're kind of at odds by then. And I I called back to search. I'm like, uh, you give me uh, some directions on how to get there. And they said, well, you call the numbers to the manager who manages the bed and breakfast, the Kloak Inn. So I call two different numbers, nobody answers. I'm with this guy, he's kind of stuck with me now. And I call back, I say, well, we got a clinic there, I'll stay there. And the nurse manager says, Sam, go to the police station and and maybe you can stay there or find an all night diner. And the guy's like, there's no all night diners in Kloak. And we see a cop sitting alongside of the road, we pull over, we try to get directions to the police station. And he says i am the police station <laughs> and so i don't know if they have like bearcat scanners or whatever but word got around that there was this guy lost you know trying to get into this inn and one of the people who heard about it was the manager so she shows up at the place and she's kind of upset because she had to get up out of bed or whatever that time of night and uh, she says well the key was right on the dresser and i'm thinking what i look like in the middle of the night in cloac turning doorknobs to look for a key so Got in my room, got situated. I said, "I need a ride to the airport in the morning." Is there a phone here? Also, uh, GCI it was all over Alaska. Doesn't work in Kluak. <laughs> and so she tells me there's no phone in the room, but there's free Wi-Fi. So it was just one thing after another. So I got a good night's sleep. She showed up in time, picked me up, took me to the airport. Well, the air strip or whatever. Uh, The place to check in was no bigger than a tool shed. And that was an interesting experience. We all kind of sat there on top of our luggage until the guy came and unlocked the door. Uh, There was a little diner down the street, got some eggs, got some coffee, and uh, finally got on the plane and got back to Sitka, back up a little bit. When I woke up that morning, I, I share a lot of people about this story since I had never been to Sitka before I got here. When I woke up in Kowak, it looked like I imagined Sitka to look before I got to Sitka, but uh, got back and thought I'd uh, walk back over to search instead of uh, catching a cab or whatever and check in, let everybody know I made it back. I made it back safe. Everything went well. And first thing the nurse manager asked me, where's the wheelchair? <laughs> it's a- That was the end of my one night in Kluwak and uh, almost everybody there invited me to come back fishing.
1: Thanks, Sam. Thanks for your story. And thanks for tuning in. We're at the halfway point of this live presentation of Sitka Tells Tales. We've heard three stories and we have three remaining. Next up is Rachel. She grew up in Seattle where she spent lots of times outdoors with her parents and two older brothers. She moved to Sitka last fall. During a tough year of college, Rachel decided to take time off and hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And her dad, on the verge of retirement and having dreamt of the PCT for decades, joined her. Welcome, Rachel.
5: My dad and I are sitting a few feet away from each other on the ground in the dark in the middle of the desert, both of us wearing black shorts, and long-sleeved gray shirts. We've been hiking the Pacific Crest Trail together for almost three months. And because of a series of logistical and safety considerations, we did what's called a flip-flop, which is hiking a section of the trail out of order. It's left us with 50 miles of the desert to hike in the middle of July. Most of the water sources are starting to run dry. The days are in the mid-90s with dry, hot air, And there aren't really any other hikers hiking this section at this time. It's just not very safe or pleasant to do so. But here we are sitting on the ground on the beginning of this 50 mile stretch that we've been planning for, for the last two days. As we've been approaching this section, we've been mapping out different ways to combine the water sources, the miles and the hours in the day to safely get to Walker Pass 50 miles South at the right time. My aunt is picking us up two mornings from now. My dad's plan went something like this, written out in my journal. Walk from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. Sleep from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. Walk from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. Sleep from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Repeat the next night with alternating chunks of time, sleeping and walking, trying to find the coolest hours of the day. Now, here we are at the planned first campsite, but I've already guzzled a third of my water. We still have 19 miles to go to get to the next source, Fox Mill Creek. And our water is not going to last us. The evening hours that we thought would be cool are not very cool. So we're sitting on the ground, going back and forth, rethinking this carefully thought out plan. What can we do? We need to get to Walker Pass in two days. Should we turn back? should should it should we just keep going and it's going to get cool enough and just have faith we're sitting there then my dad says what if we just start a brand new day right now 11 p.m. walk all 19 miles to the water we've already hiked 24 miles today but let's just pretend it's a brand new day right now it sounds crazy my body is aching and my brain is already asleep but as we sit in the idea for a few minutes it starts to make more and more sense. It's probably the safest thing to do. So we put our packs on. My dad says what he says every morning before we start hiking Rachel, are you quitting today? No, I say, not quitting today. Are you? Nope, not today. And we start a new day at 11 p.m. at night, 19 miles to go to the water and campsite. As we walk, into the darkness, my limbs aching, my brain becoming more and more delirious, all I can do is fixate on the little dim circle of light that my headlamp is illuminating on the path in front of me. We're keeping our lights on the lowest settings to conserve battery over the next two nights. And we walk into the hours, into the delirium, struggling to stay awake, struggling to stay lucid, and doing everything we can for each other to keep placing one foot in front of the other safely. We exchange stories of our college days, mine much closer in history than his. We tell riddles and sing songs. We do everything we can in this weird time warp of sanity that feels out of body and quite out of mind. But the water's lasting us. It is cool enough, and I'm not drinking it too fast anymore. We keep pushing my body more and more tired, but somehow still moving until around five in the morning, I see a little sliver of purple show up on the horizon. The morning is coming a few more miles and we get to Fox Mill Creek. I gather the water as I always do. And my dad pitches the tent miraculously finding a shady spot in the desert around 9am. We try to get some rest because we have to do this again the next night. We've hiked 43 miles this day. It's really hard to sleep though. No matter how tired my body and mind are, the heat is stifling and the light is bright and I don't really know how to sleep. So I toss and turn in the tent, flitting in and out of consciousness. My dad not getting much sleep at all. Most of the time when I wake up, I see him lying awake. As it starts to get just a little bit cooler around 6, 7, 8 p.m., we gear up for our second night. It feels like we've gotten over the biggest hurdle. We hiked the 43 miles in one day. But the second night is even worse than the first somehow, now going on a long day and even less sleep. We fill our water bottles. We hike into the delirium again, consigning ourselves to this place. We tell more stories. We sing more songs. I stare at my headlamp, losing track of place and where I am, just making sure not to misstep on the steep ridges that we're walking along in the pitch black. But for a second night, the water lasts us. It's cool enough to walk. The dawn comes again. We fill up at the last source, Spanish Needle Creek, just a little trickle, but enough to fill our bottles and we make it down to the highway where my aunt picks us up around 10 in the morning and it's already breaking 90. My dad and I hike on the PCT for two more months. We reach Canada together. Now, when I go to sleep in my queen size bed in Sitka with an extra foam mattress topper on top because the mattress is just a little too hard for my back, I look over at my wall at the map with 140 little black dots that my mom meticulously plotted with every Garmin satellite message sent from each campsite that my dad and I slept at. I look at the dots, each one its own story of vibrancy and challenge and pain and humor shared with my dad who became my closest teammate. Though I'm grateful for the life that I'm living, I often yearn for the days and nights I spent Walking and sleeping beside my dad, my body exhausted, but my soul immensely alive.
0: Thank
1: you, Rachel. That was really beautiful. I feel like I went a little hiking with you and your dad. So you are tuned into a special presentation of Sitka Tells Tales here on Raven Radio. We have two stories left to tell. The next Coming from John Stein. As he tells us, in 1960, Sitkins were hungry for TV, especially persons newly arrived from down south who were used to having weekly programs and nightly news. This is how Sitka Cable TV helped satisfy late night programming.
6: My story is about bringing television service to Sitka in 1960. Yeah, Sitka had radio, two stations. I think they were KSEW and KIFW. But TV was new and was delivered by cable in Sitka, with shows originating from a small studio down on a cathedral way, which was lost to the 1964 fire. Sitka Telephone Company provided local and long-distance phone service, so we did have connections south, but no video links existed. With the construction of the pulp mills, in Alaska, Sitka and Ketchikan of the arriving folks brought with them a expectation of watching television on a regular basis and uh, in their homes. And they were used to the urban TV broadcast directly to their houses. And this was in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And and that was really the developing time of, of television, entertainment and news broadcasts and black and white only. So the shows that I remember were like I Love Lucy, uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, Abbott and Costello Comedians, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, and on the news side, uh, Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow were busy. So our shows were weekly and news were nightly, and everyone from the South expected a TV experience, most importantly, during the long, cool, wet, winter nights, and this is how Sitka rose to the occasion. This is how it was done. This is how resourceful people used the then current technology and local resources to bring television to Sitka. KSATV was established as a several hundred subscription cable TV service in Sitka. And KSATV's programming equipment was sort of basic. They were industrial TV cameras about the size of a shoebox. 35-millimeter slide projector and uh, a camera taking pictures of flat photos, two 16-millimeter movie projectors uh, of Army-Navy vintage World War II, a desk, a camera, and a newsreader-operated control. So where did the contact come from? Seattle, 12-inch diameter rolls of 16-millimeter film, hour-long pieces. Photograph from broadcast TV showed up in Sitka by mail and uh, on the airplane after uh, spending a week in Ketchikan. So, our programming was two weeks post broadcast. So, if a movie or something was shown in Seattle on June 1st, it would be shown in Sitka on June 15th. So, anyway, contract news came from the teletype machine located at the Sitka Sentinel office. There was a second teletype machine at uh, the Sitka pulp mill and Jim Jacqua was a gentleman in charge of broadcast staff which included Sitka high school students, David Holmquist who was a son of the Lutheran church pastoral family and myself son of the uh, pulp mill family. So the objective was to deliver evening entertainment capped by a 10 p.m live newscast. So how do we make that work? We provided the latest teletype news from the Associated Press. Four hours of shows by 16-millimeter reel-to-reel photographic film, and then a half-hour news program. 15 minutes before that half-hour news program, the single-handed staff would grab a key and leave the station running all by itself, run up Lincoln Street, turn up Barrack Street, and get into the offices of the SIPCA Sentinel, at which point we would encounter a teletype machine which normally was operating. And this was an automatic typewriter and it pumped out rolls of or sheets of yellow paper that was typed out and came from the Associated Press. So we would scan that and look for the, uh, the news summary piece of the teletype paper. Uh, we would rip off the appropriate number of sheets. Uh, we would return locking the Sentinel door, run back to the KSA TV, rain, snow, or sleet, no matter the weather. And we would sit again solo at a news desk, turning on the lights, checking our hair, and moving the potentiometer levers to fade out the movie, display the KSA TV logo, and bring up the news reader's face, often reading the information cold, but with gusto. we delivered the latest news to isolated Sitkins, and we learned planning, pronunciation, punctuality, and a wonderful world perspective, working at the TV station by delivering news of the world and the nation on a regular basis. Late night, Sitka Alaska Television, 1960.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you for taking us back to some of us had no idea what it was like to be in Sitka back in those times. And thank you to all of you who are tuning in to Sitka Tells Tales on KCAW. Now we've come to our last story, and this is from Andrew Haynes. Andrew is 41 and lives in Sitka, where he spends most of his days at Seamart. When he isn't at the grocery store, he enjoys spending time with his wife, Kristen, and hanging out with their three kids, Justin, Morgan, and Molly. Some of his guilty pleasures include cheeseburgers and fries, being inside on a rainy day, getting lost in a good movie or comic book, crafting a satisfying set of pop music on the happy hour, or having good conversations with friends.
0: My
7: first date with my future wife, was both scandalous and unplanned. It was scandalous because we were both dating other people at the same time, when it was unplanned because... Well, let me back up. If you were alive in the days for September 11, 2001, and you remember, and you have clear memories of it, you remember lots of feelings and emotions that came in those days and weeks after. And aside from feelings of national unity and pride in our country and our way of life, there was also a sense of seize the moment, carpe diem. If there's something you've been wanting to do and you've been putting it off, well, there's no time like the present, right? And one of the things I'd been wanting to do was ask a super cute girl that I'd been crushing on and mildly flirting with at any given opportunity for the last year for her phone number. Kristen Nelson and I were both music majors. I was music education and she was piano performance. And this meant that we had several classes together. And at the beginning of that school year, I purposefully sat next to her in the lecture hall for music history, but I left a chair in between us, of course, I didn't wanna be too obvious about what I was doing. And we were there, we would, you know, make small talk before class and after class. And so this was the Friday, I think it was about 10 days after September 11th happened and I felt emboldened to make my move. We were making small talk as we walked out of the classroom And uh, talking about what we were going to do that weekend, and uh, I I made my move. I asked her for her phone number, and she was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to give you my phone number. So I pulled out my Nokia brick phone, and I started typing in her name, and I misspelled it for the first and only time. It's an I-N, Andrew, Kristen, with two I's. The vowels make the same sound on each syllable. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course, K-R-I-S-T-I-N. And then I put her number in my phone. I said, all right, well, have a good weekend. I'll talk to you soon. I wasn't gonna call her that night or that weekend. I didn't wanna be too desperate, you know? So I figured I'll call her next week. You know, I gotta play it cool in this situation. But that night I was playing a gig with some buddies of mine from the band program. We had put a little jazz combo together and we were playing at the student union building. And so I was there uh, with my friends and I was playing my trombone on stage. And uh, I looked in the back of the hall and I saw Kristen standing there and I couldn't believe it. And I had this charge of, oh man, she's here. And then I saw her disappear and I'm like, okay, no big deal. And then about a half hour later, she reappeared, came back and sat down at one of the tables. And in between songs, I went down and chatted with her. Now I didn't know this at the time, but she had been downstairs with her boyfriend at the bowling alley. One of her friends told her that I was upstairs in the Uh, in the room playing some jazz. So she came upstairs to confirm, went back down, told her boyfriend, hey, I'm tired, I wanna go home. So he took her home and then she came back. So we finished up the gig and she was hanging around and I said, hey, uh, David and Sherrod are coming over to my, my apartment, would you like to come with us? And she happily agreed. So we cruised over to my sweet little bachelor pad. It was a basement apartment on 9th Street in Pocatello, Idaho. And uh, we just did our did our normal thing. And I was so amazed that she seemed to just fit right in. She thought we, we were cool. Uh, you know, we were talking about the gig just hanging out. And uh, I was just so happy to like be around a girl that I just felt like I could completely be myself around. And um, eventually, David and Sherrod got tired. And they're like, All right, man, we'll see you later. We're going to get out of here. And then Kristen stayed. And that night, We stayed up all night, sitting on my bed, just talking. It was just the two of us, it was nothing physical. We were just completely in awe of each other. We just shared stories about our past, about our present, about our hopes and dreams for the future. And I just had this overwhelming sense for the first time ever around a girl, man, I could grow old with this person. We just were so it was just the two of us, like the rest of the world just didn't even exist, and the time just went by so fast. Next thing I know it's the sun is starting to come up. It's like four four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. And so I said, "Hey, well, I should probably take you home." And she said, "Yeah, sure, that'd be great." But we made plans the next night there was a there was a piano performance in the auditorium, and uh, as music students, we were expected to be there. So I said, "Hey, let's meet up beforehand, and we can um." you know, we'll go together." And she said, okay, that'd be great. So I drove her home and dropped her off. And uh, then as I was driving back home, I realized I was really hungry. So I cruised through one of my favorite 24 hour drive throughs which was Jack in the Box. And I sat there in the drive-thru, placed my order. There were some other cars, so I was kind of waiting. And right then my car ran out of gas. It just sputtered and died in the drive-thru of Jack in the Box. And I just thought, man, this is, this is a memorable night. And so I tried to restart it, you know, hoping and praying somehow there'd be a few drops of gas that would get me across the finish line of the drive-through and it wouldn't start. So I opened my door, rolled down my window, braced my hands on the frame, and pushed my car like a schmuck through that drive-through, got to the first window, paid for my food, got back in, got back out, pushed my car forward, uh, got my food, and then I was able to, luckily the ground was flat, so I was able to push my car around and I pushed it into a parking spot. And I, I, I can't remember, I think I sat there and ate my food. Then I locked my car, figured I'll have to deal with this tomorrow. So as I was walking home, I was just thinking how, man, my car is out of gas, but my heart and my head are so full. And I was on cloud nine, walking those four or five blocks back to my apartment. And Krista and I, this August, will celebrate our 17th wedding anniversary.
1: Oh, a huge thank you, Andrew. Now, I was drawn to end this show with Andrew's story because it's a love story. And after all, it touches on and plays around with our Sleepless in Sitka, which is, of course, a play off of the good old Tom Hanks romantic comedy Sleepless in Seattle. So anyway, I want to thank all our storytellers for helping bring Sleepless and Sitka, one more Sitka Tells Tales live event, to life on the radio. Thanks to the Sitka Soup and the Sitka Daily Sentinel for helping us get the word out. And to our timer for the night, Ariadne Will. As for our themes and where they come from, the idea for Sleepless and Sitka came from a conversation about insomnia. Early one morning in the ocean, floating with some fellow saltwater plungers. That is to say, we're open to ideas for themes and open to feedback. So let us know if you want to tell a story and look for the Sitka Tells Tales page and updates on Facebook. So finally, I want to thank all of you who have tuned in here on KCAW Raven Radio. And if you see one of our tellers on the street or in the grocery store, you might just see Andrew in the grocery store, be sure to let them know you heard their story and even mention a line you heard that resonated, made you laugh or think of your own story. Thanks again.
0: Thank you for joining us for Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's theme was Sleepless in Sitka. And thank you to our storytellers this evening, Brian Lovett, Spencer Severson, Sam Pointer, Rachel Thompson, John Stein, and Andrew Haynes. Thank you also to Raven Radio. Your host this evening was Ellen Frankenstein. To find out more about Sitka Tells Tales, you can visit artchangeinc.org. This audio program was made in collaboration with Art Change and Raven Radio. Our theme music tonight was Clink Tale by Poddington Bear. This episode of Sitka Tells Tales was made possible with funding from the Sitka Alaska Permanent Charitable Trust and by the Rasmussen Foundation, administered by the Alaska State Council on the Arts.